Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm back with Joe Martineau and Mark Pedroli. Hello, Joe and Mark. Good morning. Great to be here. We talked already about the Sunshine Act of Missouri. We talked about the philosophy behind the act, and we spent a nice long episode getting deep into how it works. But sometimes it doesn't work so well, and you need to engage in litigation. So we're going to be talking about that primarily in this episode. But before we get going with that, Joe, you had mentioned that there were some proposed changes, legislative changes on the horizon regarding the Missouri Sunshine Act. Did you want to walk us through a couple of the things that seem more important, maybe more concerning? It seems like every year the legislature proposes some changes to the Sunshine Law. Sometimes they are improvements. uh, Sometimes they are not. Sometimes they are attempts to limit the effect of the Sunshine Law. Uh, According to Mark, he told me today there may be a committee hearing on it today to discuss things that would actually limit the scope of the Sunshine Law. And the two major changes being suggested would be one that something called transitory records or records that are, you know, works in process, I guess is a good way to describe it, would not be subject to the Sunshine Law. As it stands now, you know, things that would be stamped draft and documents of that nature, unless there is a specific exemption that would cover that particular document, would be subject to disclosure. Now, they may not be subject to Chapter 109, where they have to be retained once the completed, you know, document is created, but they would be accessible through the Sunshine Law if they are in existence at the time a Sunshine Law request is made. But the first problem is it's just not entirely clear, in fact, entirely unclear what a transitory record is. And I think there's a lot of concern that just by stamping something draft, you're going to be able to keep it from public disclosure. For those of us who practice law and want to look at legislative history to understand the meaning of a particular statute, if those documents, the drafts of the legislation are no longer publicly available, you lose all that history. And that, I think, applies with respect to almost any document. What is the evolution of that particular matter that that document deals with. That's important to know from an historical perspective, and it's important for that information to be accessible. So that's one issue that is pending before the uh, legislature right now. The other, if you email your legislator, for instance, and you're asking him to do certain things, you know, I have this problem, you know, what do you think about it? Can we do this or can you do this for me? This legislation would close that email address, would close your identity. Now, in many instances, that's not a problem because maybe that email that you're sending is a very personal matter that maybe the public has no interest in. And it's very unlikely that anybody would, if they were to get access to it, unless they have bad motives, would do anything with it. But what about attempts to influence legislators through, you know, emails, uh, discussions of, you know, I have this project that, you know, I would like to see developed. And if we can move forward with legislation to help on that, we can do something and, for and you. And they could and be that, a constituent. They could uh, be a constituent. They are probably, consti- right. aren't they constituents? Yes. I mean, well, uh, why we, wouldn't a lobbyist be a constituent? So <laughs> that's a problem. I don't know how to answer it because as I said, I mean, you know, parents email their school board members all the time. You know, my daughter's being harassed and they don't want that out there publicly. And I can understand that. 
But there's a bigger picture here. Something other than just exempting emails of constituents to the public governmental body and members of the public governmental body. Something narrower than that has to be adopted, but this isn't doing that. Proposed legislation is closed. I think that's pretty much the same as closing the transitory records. The amendment would also authorize the public governmental body to charge for the time needed to redact documents. Now, the only good thing about that is, is it wouldn't allow you to charge for attorney time to redact the documents, but you could charge for redacting the documents, which is something under the existing statute the public governmental body is supposed to do in the beginning. They're supposed to separate exempt from non-exempt so that when you make a request, they just go to the non-exempt stack and produce that. Now you're going to have to pay for that, and that increases a problem we talked about in the last session, that one of the ways to impede access is to charge for that access. Uh, there's some other provisions. One would increase the period of time in which they have to respond from three to five days. I don't see that as a huge issue. Usually end up having more than three to five days anyway. So anyway, those are the changes that are being discussed. Whether that amendment as presently proposed is adopted is entirely unclear. The Missouri Press Association and a number of press advocates and open government advocates are against it. I think that there's some support for it among public governmental body, lobbyists, municipal leagues and stuff like that. Yeah. Mark, I'm going to give you a hypothetical. Okay. So you have filed a sunshine request on behalf of a client. You've been trying to work with the government agency and they're dragging their feet and you're not getting what you think you ought to get. And it's been going on for a while. Can you give any generalized advice about when to give up on trying to work with the agency and to file a lawsuit? So dragging their feet or not giving you what you want. Those are two different things. I would say we sometimes deal with a little bit of dragging their feet depending on the needs of the client. If the need of the client is to get immediate information for whatever reason, including a statute of limitations. And I think lawyers need to be, again, cognizant that you know filing sunshine requests is pre-discovery. And if you need this for a reason and timing is important, be ready to file the lawsuit. Also, push them to say whether or not they're closing. I would argue under the statute, if they're gonna close something, they need to tell you within three days. They don't have to give you the documents within three days, but they have to tell you either closing them all or we're closing some of them and we're going to give you others. So make them take a position on whether or not they're closing. Don't let them drag their feet for six months and then at the end of the six months say, oh, it's closed <laughs> because then you have been played. So do not let that happen. If you demand an answer on whether or not they're closing any records, they don't reply. I would say be ready to file a lawsuit for attorneys. And for other folks out there, it's actually not that difficult to file a pro se lawsuit in a Sunshine case. I would say it's not too hard to do this. You can file a one count lawsuit, one page. You can sign it yourself and file it with the court saying that they have you know, not given you the records you've requested. And I would say be ready to do that because I think it's the only thing that sort of wakes up these clerks and the custodian of records in the government to respond. Now, if you think you're not getting specific records, go back to them, try to work with them, tell them what you don't think you're getting because they're going to argue later and you're going to see this is in the deposition, you're going to have a clerk or a custodian who's not a lawyer and they're going to say, well, I was confused by what you wrote and I didn't know that you meant this. And then they're going to say, so I didn't do it intentionally, right? So this was just a mistake. And under the law, you have to prove knowing and purposeful. So be prepared in advance to set up a case for knowing and purposeful violations. So what we typically do is we'll have a whole round of communications where we'll say, is there anything you're not clear on? Is there anything you found confusing 
that I can clarify in a subsequent communication. So we try to clarify it all. And sometimes even if they say, well, it's closed, I'll send them a case or I'll send them a small one-page brief telling them why they're wrong and that they need to reassess, they need to talk to their lawyer, and they need to produce the records within 10 days. And then if they don't do it, you've set up this sort of argument that they were aware of all the information and they still didn't give you the record. Therefore, it must be a knowing and purposeful violation. A couple points to what Mark said. One is keep in mind, he mentioned the statute of limitations. It is one year from the date of violation, you know, and who knows when the violation occurs. I would say that it occurs when the request is denied, mm -hmm. but the request may not be denied for 60 days down the road. So I would assume that the request is denied when they say they need more time. I would use that as my starting point for accrual of the cause of action. The other one is, I think we alluded to this in the last session, I think a very good argument can be made that if you don't do what Mark has suggested as a public governmental body and identify the reason for closing the record within the three days or the short period of time that you ask for an extension, that you've waived that particular exemption. And that if you later come up with a different exemption, that you can't rely on that. Is there any role ever for a jury in any litigation regarding Sunshine? I wish, but no. There are judge-tried cases. I've never heard of an example. I mean, you can have other counts that go in front of a jury, but I would think that if you have a count that's related to violation of 610, that that gets decided by the judge. And the judge makes a determination also of whether their violation was knowing and purposeful. Yeah, and certainly there was no common law right of access prior to these statutes. So therefore, there's no constitutional right to trial by jury on these cases. I've certainly never heard of one, right. and I would be shocked if there was one. So the main thing most people want is the records. But let's say in the middle of a litigation, the defendant says, here's your records, and let's say it's a satisfactory production. What else can you get out of a sunshine yeah, That's case? not enough for us, no. Typically, they've delayed. They've cost you attorney's fees. They've cost you your time in filing litigation, doing discovery. They can't just say, and I hear it all the time, too. They'll just go to the judge and say, but your honor, we gave them the records. And I said, yeah, they gave them to me last week. And they didn't give them to me a year and a half ago when it mattered. This is when it was the important time to have it. So we do not drop cases ever when they produce records in the middle of litigation, we go all the way, which means we're gonna to try to prove knowing a purposeful violation. And you know, giving the records in the middle of the case, frankly, we think creates an appearance that it was a knowing and purposeful violation to not give it to us at an earlier time when it might've been politically important or for example, the airport privatization case, right? They didn't wanna give it to us in the middle of that. They wanted to give us when it's all over right? Because it didn't matter then, because they didn't want it in the newspaper. A huge part of these cases is making them pay a penalty for their behavior so that they don't do it again. And if you're an attorney and you're going to be doing this sort of pre-litigation request, and you're going to be doing them a lot because you might have a government defendant on a potential case, I think you need to set the tempo with them as well to let them know you're not just going to take it and have them give you the documents a year later and then not continue to pursue not only the penalty for the violation, but also the attorney's fees that they made you expend. Now it's difficult, and I think everyone knows this, it does these cases. It's not easy to win a knowing and purposeful violation. So you can win the records 
And you can get summary judgment in your favor, for example, or an order giving you the records, but then says you don't get the attorney's fees. Now, obviously, that makes it very difficult. There's been Supreme Court cases where there's been strong dissent about this proposition that you have to prove a knowing and purposeful violation, but it came down on the other side against plaintiffs, and that's made it difficult. Now, it's not impossible. Look, we just won a case of knowing and purposeful against the attorney general's office, the office that is supposed to enforce the Sunshine Law. It was back when Josh uh, Hawley was running for the Senate, and they were hiding their records from a requester. In this case, it was the Democratic Senate Campaign Committee. And they were hiding their emails that was showing that outside consultants in Washington, D.C. were sort of directing attorney general staff on what to do. Right. So they were imported to Missouri to tell the staff what to do because he was preparing for a campaign nationally. Now, we argued, well, that was wrong on many reasons. It was a misuse of taxpayer funds. It was all these other problems. There was an investigation open into that. But we won that on summary judgment. And we also got attorney's fees as well. So these cases can be won. You just have to stick to it and go to the end. Joe, what theories can a person plead when they're filing a Sunshine case? And I'm thinking it might be declaratory judgment or injunction. Is there another one? Is this called violation of Sunshine Act? We usually have four counts in any of the petitions that we bring. One would be a violation of the Sunshine Law. Another one would be for injunctive relief. The statute specifically allows injunctive relief. Third one would be declaratory judgment action, as you just mentioned. And a fourth one would be for mandamus. And, you know, frankly, we've never litigated this to the point where we've determined if mandamus is appropriate. I think declaratory judgment is clearly appropriate. Injunction is clearly appropriate. And maybe there's no reason to have the mandamus in there. But usually that's what we assert. I want to address one point that Mark raised. I think it's a good one. You know, you make these requests because you want the information. And from the standpoint of the news media, which I generally represent, there's a reason they call it news. It's new. <laughs> and if they delay for six months, basically they've won at yeah. that point. It's not news any longer at that point. Now, it may be reported, the whole thing with the attorney general. I think that's still news. People want to read that. But a lot of times you're just talking about the project down the street. And they just want to delay people knowing about this project that's going to be built using TIF money or something like that. The other problem is that the damages, whether they be attorney's fees or damages for a knowing and purposeful violation, who's paying that? It's not the public servant that's denying you access. It's you. Yeah. It's coming from the taxpayer coffers. To really make this statute effective, you need a provision in the statute that would somehow hold the persons who are denying the request accountable in some fashion. What that would be, you know, I'm not in a position to say right now. It certainly isn't something that the legislature is opposed. Another possibility is to have something like Illinois has. They have somebody in the attorney general's office that will basically tell the public governmental body over there, they're called agencies, the requester is right, you need to produce those documents. Now, whether that would work in this state under the current attorney general, I don't know, but it would be nice to have a separate advocate for public records. They used to have, when Jay Nixon was the attorney general, there were actually two people that would get involved in this fashion. He actually appointed someone to actually get involved in Sunshine Law requests, and they would issue opinions to the public governmental body to whom the requests were made. They didn't necessarily have the effect of law or were binding in any way, but they were certainly helpful if you were forced to litigate and then you were going to claim a purposeful violation. I think they influenced the public governmental body quite a bit. Let's assume you're now in the spot where you are ready to bring your suit. Who do you sue? 
And I'm thinking maybe we can throw a hypothetical out there. Let's say it's the sheriff's department in the city of St. Louis. So there's a person who holds that office and then there's a department that might or might not be an entity that's suable. Who do you sue? And you can go beyond that example. I think there is some option here. I used to take the position that you would sue the entity and the custodian. I don't sue as many custodians individually anymore because typically I don't need to. And if they make a complaint, I'll amend the lawsuit later. When I deal with sheriffs, I typically sue the sheriff or the sheriff's department. And we do have probably two or three pending litigations right now against sheriff's departments throughout Missouri, actually in rural counties. And it typically has to deal with because they run the jails and someone has died, typically a pretrial detainee because they did not get medical care. So it's discovery that we do before we analyze whether or not there's a 1983 civil rights violation involving deprivation of medical rights under the Eighth Amendment. And, you know, text messages, emails that name the person. A lot of information you get when something is happening in real time and they're talking about it. And routinely we don't get these and it does result in litigation. But to answer your specific question, I think you can sue the entity. If there's a complaint that you sued the wrong party, typically you can just add a party. It hasn't been a huge concern. Would it be enough to just say John Doe, if John Doe is the sheriff, or do you need to say John Doe, comma, sheriff of the city? Or is there any tricks there to be careful or else you only have a person as opposed to the office? Yeah, to me, no. I mean, that is an issue, whether you're suing someone individually or in their official capacity. In a civil rights case in federal court, that's a huge issue. I think in state court, I haven't seen this be an issue. I've sued custodians. I've sued the department. Usually, I'll just bring it against St. Louis County or St. Louis City. And typically, the counselors won't argue that I need to sue their custodian. They don't want their custodian sued. In a lot of ways, I don't like to sue custodians. They're clerks. They're folks working there. You know, it's just something I prefer not to do if I have a choice. You know, the request has to be made to the custodian. And I'm always concerned that if you don't at least name the custodian, and I'm always very careful about how we do that, you know, as custodian, solely in her capacity or his capacity as custodian of records, because I agree, they're usually a low level person. But unfortunately, and I think you had mentioned this in our last session, I know I've been through it, where they say you're not suing the right person. <laughs> you're not suing the proper defendant. And that's the concern that I have if you don't sue the custodian. I would also sue the entity and maybe persons who are you know, involved in denying the request or ignoring the request. Right. And I'm not going to disagree with that either. I, I guess it sort of depends on your practice. I mean, in St. Louis County, the practice was typically not to have us sue the custodian. And as long as they're cooperating in discovery and they're making the custodian answer written discovery, then I don't have a problem. But if they're not in their persnickety about that, or they try to be clever about it, then I'm going to add them immediately. Yeah, I think the concern is perfectly legitimate that you don't want to put a person who is stuck in the middle in that particular position. But having had that game played on me where <laughs> right. the litigation was going on for over a year, and all of a sudden I'm facing a motion to dismiss based on the fact that I've named the wrong defendant, right. even though the other person had always been held out as the person that we should be dealing with, the person who responded to these requests, the person who did respond to the request by ignoring it and then denying it, and then have that rug pulled out from under you, that is a concern. I would hope that, you know, responsible public governmental bodies such as St. Louis County, which apparently is the case, would not pull that game. Mm -hmm. But it can happen. Yeah. Over the years, I always try to copy what others have done before I try to reinvent the wheel. And 
I'm wondering, do either of you have like a oldies but goodies batch of ideas for your discovery? Like when you're about to issue some interrogatories or requests for production, are there things that recur in these kinds of cases that you want to make sure you go, these are the go-to things? Many of the cases that I'm involved in, there's been a legitimate dispute about whether or not the records are exempt or not exempt or subject to disclosure. And in those cases, I've been able to work it out with the other side where we'll just have stipulations, submit those to the court. So I have not had many cases. It sounds like Mark has where he's had to give a lot of consideration to discovery, but I really haven't had to deal with that. We've had a few, I mean, that go deep into discovery. And obviously, you know, the burden is high on the plaintiff to prove knowing and purposeful, which is sort of, you know, almost criminal intent, right? I knew that this was violating the law and I violated it anyway because... The mayor told me that we don't want this news out right now because we don't want it in the newspaper, for example, right? But to prove that, there are a few recurring questions. Always ask for all communications about your sunshine request because that's the first thing you need to know. You need to know if the custodian, what did they do when they got it? Did they call the mayor and go, oh my God, you're not going to believe this. We got a sunshine request for the thing you don't want anyone to know about. And if that's in the emails, you know, obviously you have a smoking gun. Public officials oftentimes have government-issued phones. We ask for the bills. We ask for the text messages. So we want to know everything about all the communications that happened. Don't forget texts. Don't forget the bills because it usually shows text messages being sent and received. So I would say those are a few things to keep an eye out for. Other than that, almost every case is different where you really do kind of have to reinvent the wheel when you're doing discovery, whether it's the St. Louis airport case or whether it's we have a case pending in St. Louis County where we requested a police radio dispatch where unfortunately one of the officers used a racial epitaph and it was caught on the radio and he was talking about a co-employee. And we heard about it and we had a plaintiff who contacted me and she wanted to request that. And she felt it was purposeful that they didn't give it to her, but then they later did. So, I mean, each case, those are two totally different cases. So, you know, proving knowing and purposeful, you're going to have to sit down and think, why do you think it was knowing and purposeful? What do you think they did? Did they talk to somebody? Did the county counselor's office or the city counselor's office weigh in on it and tell them not to release it? Those are the sort of things you have to consider. This has been a great conversation. Thank you both for being here. Not just this part, but there's another part before this. So we'll see you next time. We're going to talk about litigation. But again, thank you for being here. This has been a great conversation. Thank Enjoy. you for having me. All right. This has been another episode of The Jury is Out. I'm Eric Feith, and I'll see you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.